continuing our series from the Psalms. We are in book two of the Psalms, and this morning we find ourselves, uh, by God's grace, in Psalm 70. You should find that on page 572 of your pew Bibles, I believe. We are uh, close to winding up our partial journey in the Psalms at this point. We'll probably do a couple of more of these and then move on to other things. But uh, for now, we're in Psalm 70, and if you're able, would you stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and authoritative word? Make haste, O God, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let them turn back because of their shame who say, Aha, aha. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. But I am poor and needy. Hasten to help me, O my God. You are my help. And my deliverer, O Lord, do not delay. These are the words of the living God. May he add his blessing to our hearts this morning. Please be seated. So I think it's both interesting and important to take note of the fact, the truth, that even after we've worked through four consecutive psalms, Psalm 65 through 68, that focused on and celebrated God, the divine king's undisturbed reign over the entire earth. That even after that, we still find in the last psalm, 68 or 69, and this one in 70, we still find the earthly messianic king David still struggling with opposition, with enemies who are opposing him and seeking to harm him. And remember, this is even though, as we've read in these last few psalms, that God has been noted as triumphing over Egypt, triumphing all through the desert, triumphing in the conquering of the land of Canaan, at Sinai as he majestically appeared to his people and made a covenant with them, and finally being enthroned in Zion as the ark was brought there to, in a sense, unite God's throne with David's throne. And yet, David still faces opposition, enemies, struggles, trouble. I plan to examine this psalm this morning under three headings, and and the first would be the urgency of this prayer. The second would focus on the desires of this prayer. And the last would be focusing on the confidence of this prayer. The psalm, of course, is a prayer. It's a prayer to God. It is admittedly a very brief prayer, five verses. It's also interesting to note, in light of that size, that the editor who long, long ago, under God's supervision, who organized these psalms in their current order, deliberately chose to place this very short psalm directly following Psalms 68 and 69, which are both very extended psalms related to it, right? 35 and 36 verses respectively in those psalms. It's it's interesting to note that placement. And it's especially significant, I think, 
that it comes directly on the heels of Psalm 69, which also was a cry from God to come and save David from his enemies. They're really focused on the same thing, yet one's 36 verses and one is 5. And we also should understand that the situation that prompted that prayer in Psalm 69 was also quite serious and, and very urgent to David, right? He talked about overwhelming floods that were going to sweep over him, about sinking in deep mire with no foothold. Whatever the difficulty was, it caused David to be praying apparently over a very long time. He was worn out from praying. And he took 36 verses to express his needs to God. We know that he took time to, if you want to say persuade, encourage God to answer him by stressing the great number of his enemies, their great might, along with the great injustice that was being done to him and his vulnerability to them. He even took time, remember, to remind God that in the course of this long season of prayer he had been involved in, that he had wept before God, fasted before God, even put on sackcloth to humble himself before God, and in fact was mocked and scorned for doing all of that. He described himself in verse 3 of that psalm as waiting for my God. Now, in my own prayer life, over the course of my life, I've most often used the acronym, the model uh, ACTS, A-C-T-S, to guide my own thoughts and structure my own prayers as I come before God. And I've recommended this, rather, as a guide to others. It focuses, first of all, that letter A is focused on some degree in your prayer of adoration for God. To begin by adoring God for His glory and His greatness, for the just absolutely glorious being that He is. Next, in the sea, it encourages us to come before God, spending some time in that prayer confessing our sins and our sinfulness. Not only the sins, remember, but the sinfulness that inclines us to those sins. Why do we worry about confessing our sins in our prayers when we come to God? Well, don't forget what we read in Psalm 68, verse 18. If I regard or tolerate sin in my heart, God will not hear me. And so we confess it so that we, in a sense, clear the slate before God and and pave the way for Him to hear and answer our prayers. Then, in the T, that, that model prompts you to sincerely give thanksgiving to God for all of His incredible grace and love toward you. Remember, Paul, again, in Philippians 4, 6, "...in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving." Let your request be made known to God. And then finally, having properly prepared the way, if you will, as Paul has been teaching, and as he said there just a second ago, we are then ready for supplication, the S in Acts. We're ready to let our requests, our needs, our desires, to be made known to God. Now, obviously, in order for that to be properly done, it usually results in more time being spent in prayer, and it is, of course, notice I'm going to say a proper biblical approach to prayer. It's not the, it is a proper and biblical approach to prayer. But again, our first point in this is the urgency of this prayer. Did you notice in this five-verse prayer that David, I won't say he doesn't do it, but he doesn't do a lot of all of that in this prayer. It's not like Psalm 68 or 69 where he spends a great deal of time developing many of those things. 
Just how urgent is this prayer of David for deliverance and help in this psalm? Well, I want you to notice that this five-verse psalm is literally bookended, beginning and end, by David's stress to God of the immediacy of his need for help. Look at verse 1. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. You see that? He repeats it twice for emphasis in that first short verse. And then again in verse 5 as the psalm ends. Hasten to me, O God. O Lord, do not delay. Again, repeated twice. That's four times now in a short five-verse psalm. David is strongly emphasizing his urgent need for God to act on his behalf. And also don't miss in verse 5 where David begins by saying, But as for me, I am what? Poor and needy. That's part of the urgency as well. Notice, David is the king. David actually, in material terms, is wealthy and powerful, has all kinds of things at his disposal. But that's outwardly. And David knows that God looks on the heart. And David knows that inwardly, he is completely at God's mercy. God will either sustain him in the face of his enemies, or he will cause his enemies to crush him. I am poor and needy, and I need you. That's part of the urgency of David's prayer as he comes before God in this situation. Now, there are a couple of other ways we can tell, though, how urgent David is in this psalm. First of all, we see that in verse 2, the enemies that he's facing do not just want to have an election and defeat him and have him go back home and they take over the kingdom of Israel. They want to kill him. They're seeking his life. And not only that, but they delight They take joy in him being caused harm, hurt, misery. So that's one way in which we can see the urgency. This isn't just an ordinary situation. This is literally life and death. And these are malicious people. Now the second way that we can see this is by the fact that this psalm even exists. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, you may not have realized, but we've seen these verses before. I know you all pay astute attention when I am preaching, and I know that your memories are crystal clear going back, what would that be, back in 2021, I think, or 20, when I preached on Psalm 40. But this, actually, this psalm is actually quoted almost word for word from Psalm 40, verses 13 to 17. The truth is, to my shame, I will admit that I almost decided not to preach on this psalm. I thought to myself, I've already preached on these verses, why do I want to repeat that now? It's, it's kind of useless, they've already heard this. And then I decided, <clears throat> was reminded, that the Holy Spirit actually knows better than I do what his people need to hear and read and be encouraged by. And if the Holy Spirit thought it was important to take these five verses from way back in 40 and redo them again here in this part of the Psalter, then who am I to think they are not worthy of spending time with you in examining? Notice that the title, and I point out the titles when they have relevance, the title here is Actually, the the ESV says it's for the memorial offering. Offering isn't in 
the original language there. It really is for memorial. It, it, the word there really means to bring to remembrance, to cause you to remember. To remember what? Well, maybe to remember, I prayed these words before. I've been in this situation before. And if you look back to Psalm 40, you find that Psalm 40 actually in its overall presentation is a very positive, encouraging, uplifting psalm in terms of God's response to David's prayer. So we've looked then at the urgency of his prayer. What are the desires of David's prayer? What is it that David wants from God in this short prayer? Well, obviously the very first thing David wants and the last thing David wants is a speedy response. No delay, O God. But when God does respond, what is it that David wants from him? He wants God to deliver him. The word means to rescue him, to save him. It it carries the idea of literally snatching someone out of a situation. He also wants him to help him, to support him. David feels like he's got all these enemies who are trying to kill him. In a sense, he's on his own here. And he wants to know, we would put it maybe, he wants to know that God has his back. That God is going to help him and support, sustain, and encourage him from his enemies. And obviously from their evil plans that they are enacting against him. Now when you look at verses 2 and 3, we spent time in Psalm 69 looking at several verses where David prayed what what people call an imprecatory prayer. Where David literally called down the ultimate curse of God on his enemies. And, and you may wonder, is that what David's doing again in this psalm in verses 2 and 3? And, and I would say absolutely no, it's not at all. David isn't praying for God's ultimate curse here. He's not praying that these people would be cast into hell. He's praying that they and their plans will not succeed against him. He's praying that God will work providentially through things so that their plans will be frustrated and so that they will be brought to shame and humiliation. Remember the idea of shame in in the Hebrew context often carried out this idea of disappointment. David wants them to be shamed, to be disappointed because their plans do not succeed against him. And notice he uses a word, actually at least a couple of different words there, all three cases in which they use, they all really mean shame or humiliation. David is really, again, repetition is stressing the importance thing. David wants these people defeated. He wants them to not succeed. He wants them to be shamed, disappointed, humiliated. He desires that those who delight in his harm, notice they, they delight in his harm, those who say, aha, that word aha, it's not one we tend to use a lot. Um, when we used to watch the old cartoons, sometimes we used to see the villain who would come along and say, aha! You know, and, and, and the idea, it can mean either righteous joy, or it can mean, like in this context, malicious joy. Taking delight in someone's humiliation, downfall, harm, even death. And David desires that those who would say, aha, aha, again twice, emphasis to him, that they would have to retreat. The word literally means that as they turn and run away, he would be able to see their backs as they run away from him. So we see that, but also it's important for us to note in terms of David's desires in this prayer that they are not only against his enemies 
and their evil plans. We also note that David isn't in this psalm only praying for his own benefit. He, it's a really short psalm. But it's important to note that David in this short psalm isn't selfish. Or shall we say self-centered. Inward focused. Focused only on himself. Notice he does pray that God would defeat his enemies and frustrate their plans. But he, he prays that God would do that so that... Those who seek God, not those who seek his life, but those who seek God, would see that deliverance and would be glad because of it. That they would rejoice in God, notice, not rejoice in David being saved, but rejoice in God for having saved David. And therefore, remember, saving them because David is the king. David is God's appointed representative, their shepherd. And if the shepherd is stricken, then the sheep are vulnerable. And so it is for their blessing as well. Notice he desires, may those who appreciate being saved, no, those who love your salvation, that they would say continually in an unceasing way, God is great. God is magnified. God is glorified. You see, David, in his desires, even in this very short prayer, is concerned for the whole church, for the whole people of God, and concerned about their response to God. That it would be a righteous, joyful, God-glorifying response. And finally, we turn to David's confidence in this prayer. And as we do this, I want us to note where David's confidence is placed. Remember, he is the king. He has a kingdom. And along with being king and having a kingdom, he's got an army. Pretty powerful army. He's been defeating enemies all over the place. If you go back and read through the the historical narrative books about this, David, God gives him victory everywhere he goes with that army. And yet you notice his armies aren't even mentioned in this psalm. They don't even figure into the equation. And notice David's confidence isn't in himself. Again, the description he gives of himself isn't, I'm good and strong and I've got great preparations made. I just need a little bit of help from you to get this taken care of. His presentation to God is, I'm poor and needy. I'm helpless. I'm as vulnerable as they come. I need you utterly, completely, to help me and deliver me. Also notice both, again, in verses 1 and 5, I pointed out already his repeated plea for haste, but did you notice that in his first plea for haste in both of those verses, he called upon God, the word Elohim. Remember, that's that sort of generic name of God that the psalmist deliberately chooses in this second book of the Psalter, probably as a desire to communicate with the nations. They wouldn't know Yahweh, But they also would call their gods Elohim. And so they understand that word. And so likely David's using that word for that reason here. But notice, first time asking for haste, it's Elohim. But notice in both verses, the second time, O Lord, O Yahweh, the covenant name of his covenant God, the name by which God bound himself to his people, committing to be both their God and their Redeemer, their Savior, their help and 
deliverer. And so David calls upon him by his covenant name. We look at this, we understand that David is desiring God to help him. And in verse 1, again, comparing verse 1 and 5, there's another thing to note. David, in verse 1, asked to be helped and asked to be delivered. But do you notice what he said in verse 5? God, you are my help and my deliverer. In other words, I'm not looking anywhere else. I'm not expecting it from anywhere else. I'm not turning anywhere else. If I'm going to be helped and delivered, you're it. And you promise to be that for me. In fact, we could almost insert the word only in there. You are my only help and deliverer. And David certainly, he talks about those who love God's salvation. David is among those who love God's salvation. David has seen God's salvation at work for him over and over and over again, repeatedly through his life. He's experienced it, he's rejoiced in it, and he is encouraging all of those others in Israel who feel the same as he does about that to rejoice. He knows God to be his Savior, and he knows God to be the Savior of his people. But notice he knows something else about God. God isn't just somebody who can save you. God is great. God is glorified and magnified above all things. And for that reason alone, God deserves to have his people rejoice and be glad in him. But that's another point to that idea of him emphasizing God's greatness. And it is that that very reason, that very character of God, his greatness, is exactly why David can confidently turn to God, asking him to sovereignly frustrate the plans of his wicked enemies and turn them back in shame. Who else would be able to do that but the sovereign God who is all-powerful? In fact, it is possible that that phrase in the title for the memorial, to bring to remembrance, is intended deliberately to make us think about Psalm 40. Because literally in the first half of Psalm 40, David is rejoicing in and remembering all the ways in which God has delivered both him individually and the people corporately as a nation And that remembrance gives David confidence, a confident foundation from which to cry out to God for deliverance now, when the enemies have returned and their plans are every bit as wicked. And so the idea then is that now in this current situation, the editor pulls this psalm forward and repeats it again because... David was helped before in Psalm 40, and now he needs help again, and God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so the same words of this psalm can be prayed confidently again in this situation, and by the way, they can also be prayed by us confidently in any new situation that we may come across. And so as we come to the end of the psalm, we wonder about application, and and the question is, does this psalm really apply to us. I mean, after all, none of us are kings. Some of us think we are. None of us are actual kings with a kingdom, right? 
And I sincerely hope that there's no one actively seeking to have any of us killed or, or out there maliciously longing to see us hurt, taking joy in that. And yet, even as I say that, I would actually urge you to consider again whether that's actually true or not. Because after all, Colossians 1.13 tells us that God has brought us into the kingdom of his beloved son. So we do have a kingdom. And in fact, if you were to go to Revelations, in chapter uh, 1 and verse 6, Jesus himself tells us that he has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. And so, we have a kingdom and we are kings, according to the infallible word of God. You see, we have to remember that there is the earthly reality that we live in, We face it every day. But there is also the spiritual reality that we live out of. Do you understand the distinction in that? Remember Jesus prayed for us in John 17. They are in the world, but they're not of the world, right? Yes, we are here. And because of that, we run into all kinds of things. But that's not what we live out of. That's not where we find our strength and our resources and our ability to be able to live the life we live. We have to remember in that spiritual reality that we live out of, the world, the flesh, and the devil are all and always delighting, as David says, in causing us eternal spiritual harm by tempting us to turn away from our God and thereby seeking our life, losing our eternal life, which is found only in Christ. And so although intense persecution isn't yet happening in this country... It's my duty as your pastor to prepare you for what is to come. And I would tell you that in a way not unlike how God, remember the book of Job, how God sort of lowered his protective fence. Remember that Satan complained, well, of course he serves you. You build a fence all around him. I can't get anywhere near him. And God says, okay, I'll take the fence down a few feet. You can touch his property. Then later he takes it down a few feet more. You can touch him, but you can't kill him. I think in a very similar way, God has been lowering the protective fence that he has put up around the true church here in America. And I think that we are beginning to feel the winds and the heat, the intensity of persecution that's beginning to be fanned into flame. And I think that we should be aware that that could ignite into full-blown flame at some point, and we could face the same kind of persecution that people are facing in Iran and in China and all over the face of this globe. Now, it's true that most of our prayers should not be as brief as this one. After all, the Bible is how God talks to us, right? God speaks to us through his word. And so, if we want to hear God talk, we should spend a good bit of time reading the scriptures, meditating on the scriptures, talking about the scriptures, because that's how God talks to us. Well, in the same way, prayer is how we talk or commune with God. If it's a dialogue we want to have, God speaks to us through his word, and we speak to him through prayer. In this life, do we not speak a great deal to those that we love and respect? 
Don't we look forward to conversations with those people and sometimes almost hate to hang up the phone or, or get in our car and drive away because we just enjoy it so much? How much more should we be that way with God? How much does He love us? <laughs> right? You see, we should enjoy and benefit from those prayers, those talks that we have, and we should look forward to those prayer times that we have in talking with God. And so, yes, in general, we should spend more time in prayer, not less. Most of our prayers should not be as brief as this one, and yet, there will be times when we will pray just like this because we need to, because it's urgent, because it has to be. Notice, I said David didn't do much of those acts, items in this prayer, but he does them. You see adoration of God, he's great. You see confession, I'm poor and needy. You see thanksgiving, God is my deliverer, my help. You see supplication, you see all of the elements there. They're just in a very brief form. And so as we're really thinking about the message of this psalm for us, I think one of the things we want to do is ask, are we ever really urgent with God in prayer? When you come to God, what's the tone? What's the spirit that's in your heart? Is there ever urgency to it? Or is it always just sort of, okay, God, uh, here's the list for today. Um, I'd appreciate it if you'd kind of take care of these things today and I'll check back in with you tomorrow to see where we're at on all of that. Is that how we approach prayer with God? Is there ever any time that we come to God in an urgency? Do we really see our God as so essential to our lives that when we run across especially difficult circumstances, they literally drive us to Him urgently in prayer? Do we ever experience that? Realizing that He alone is our source of hope and strength. You alone, David says, are my help and my deliverer. Is that how we see things? Yeah, not all of our prayers have to be this urgent. There are going to be times when we go to God just rejoicing and giving thanks. Although I argue that even those should be urgent. Not all of our prayers have to be this urgent, but if none of our prayers are this urgent, then I have to ask you, what is our view of God's help and of our need? After all, we truly are, whether we realize it or not, we truly are, in the most real sense possible, poor and needy. We are dirt. We have nothing. Jesus himself said, without me, you can do what? Nothing. Nothing. Also, as we talk about the urgency, if we move into thinking about the desires in our prayers, even in brief prayers like this, we should follow David's example and not allow ourselves to be totally self-centered and self-focused, turned inward. When we run into troubles and we have difficulty in our lives, we shouldn't just wring our hands and think, oh, poor me. 
we should also be driven to think, you know what, this is what other people are going through too. I understand a little better now what so, brother so-and-so has been going through. And our trouble should lead us to sympathetically pray for them as well. And their troubles and difficulties. We are, after all, one body. We are united to each other. And by the way, our weakness, recognizing and confessing that we are poor and needy, should also remind us of God's, as it does David, of God's greatness and His glory. And it should lead us to praise Him for it and to thank Him for it, even if it's only briefly. Those things should be in our heart and mind and expressed to Him at all times. And so part of the question this psalm begs of us is, what are our desires in prayer besides what is our urgency in prayer? And finally, I guess you can figure out what the final question is then. What is our confidence in our prayers? You see, David prayed with confidence because he had seen God in action for him over and over and over again. But I'm going to tell you that our confidence should be much more than David's. I know that sounds strange because David's this mighty man of God, right? David only looked forward to the promises God had made. We look back at the fulfillment of them in Christ. Do you remember what what Paul said in that passage from Romans 8 that we read together for our responsive reading this morning? He began that by saying that if God is for us, who can be against us? That's a great promise, isn't it? It's one we all like to carry around and think about when we face trouble. But did you ever stop to think about, yeah, but how can we know if God is for us? (laughs) If He's for us, who can be against us? But how do we know if He's for us? We know because He sent His only begotten Son literally to be God with us, Emmanuel. He sent him literally to be the propitiation for our sins, to come and die in our place. Can you believe it? Sent his own son to die for miserable, rebellious people like us? He sent him to be what David said God is, our help and our deliverer, our redeemer, our savior. Jesus, when he walked this earth, promised, I will build my church and not even the gates of hell itself will prevail against it. Take that it out and put us, because we are the church. Not even the gates of hell will prevail against us, Jesus said. Do you need confidence? Remember, Jesus, when he was leaving this world, told his disciples, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to who? Me. Me. And he promises you that the gates of hell will not prevail against you. He also said in John chapter 16, verse 33, I said these things to you. And he's been talking to them in all that passage about how he's going to be leaving and how he's going to have to die and all these things are going to go on. I've been saying all these things to you so that in me, he says, you may have not unrest, but peace. Peace. In the world, now think about the connection of these things. I've said these things so you'll have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation is the next thing he says. Wow, how do I have peace when I've got all this tribulation? That doesn't sound like those go together. In the world, you will have tribulation, but notice what Jesus says. But take heart, be encouraged, be brave. I have overcome the world. You will have tribulation in the world, but guess what? I've already defeated it. (laughs) 
So that tribulation is only going to be a difficulty for a time. I'm the conqueror, and I've already defeated it. And then, remember at the end of that passage in Matthew 28, as he's leaving his disciples, the last thing he tells them is, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The end of the age. Now again, think back to that passage from Romans chapter 8, verses 35 to 39. Yes, if God is for us, who can be against us? But what does the nitty-gritty come down to? So, we're still suffering. We're like sheep every day, set out to the slaughter, being killed all day long. And yet, in the face of that, Paul says, so what can separate us from Christ's love for us? And he goes through almost any possible danger you can think of, right? And when those aren't enough, in case he's missed anything, he says, and and no other thing in all of creation, by the way, that also means you, because you're something in all of creation. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. And so, yes, we will face ongoing struggle and trouble in this life, even though our king... Our divine king has conquered the world, the flesh, the devil. Put them all under his boot. We will still face those things just as David faced struggles, even though God had conquered and been enthroned. But you see, because we know that he has done that, that he has overcome the world and Satan we can also be supremely confident that in any and every situation, He is our help and our deliverer. We can love Him and His salvation and praise Him to the end of our days as David did. Let's pray. Father, how we thank You for almost a great grace. It's just incredible grace that You show to us in Christ. That even in this five-verse psalm that could be dropped into the dustbins of, of obscurity in some ways, we look at this and we find new hope. Not new hope. We find the true hope rekindled in our hearts and lives. We find David pointing us back to the God who is our help and our deliverer, the one whom we are to see as great and to love the salvation that you bring and that you are. And so we pray, O oh God, that you would take the words of this psalm and plant them deeply in our hearts, that you would encourage us by them, that you would convict us by them, that you would use them to make us people who love you and trust you, who see our own weakness and inability, and because of that aren't driven to despair, but instead are driven to turn to see your infinite perfection and strength and supply of grace. And that we would also, with David, confidently in every situation, know, cling to, and live in the face of the reality that you are our help and our deliverer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.